Welcome to Literary Guys. I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. As many of you know, from time to time, we like to take a break from our regular book discussions and instead go deep into a short story, something which tackles some topics that we find interesting and also is a highlight of that author's career. And today is no exception. We're going to be reading Dagon by H.P. Lovecraft. While I find this to be an interesting and perhaps a little bit terrifying story, I will say, as we do here on the show, that this does contain some triggering discussion of suicide. And so if that is something bothersome to you, then I would advise skipping the entirety of this episode. And with that, Dagon by H.P. Lovecraft. I am writing this under an appreciable mental strain, since by tonight I shall be no more. Penniless, and at the end of my supply of the drug which alone makes life endurable, I can bear the torture no longer, and shall cast myself from this garret window into the squalid street below. Do not think from my slavery to morphine that I am a weakling or a degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess though never fully realize why it is that I must have forgetfulness or death. It was in one of the most open and least frequented parts of the broad Pacific that the packet of which I was supercargo fell a victim to a German sea raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning, and the ocean forces of the Hun had not completely sunk to their later degradation, so that our vessel was made a legitimate prize, whilst we of her crew were treated with all the fairness and consideration due us as naval prisoners. So liberal, indeed, was the discipline of our captors that five days after we were taken, I managed to escape alone in a small boat with water and provisions for a good length of time. When I finally found myself adrift and free, I had but little idea of my surroundings. Never a competent navigator, I could only guess vaguely by the sun and stars that I was somewhere south of the equator. Of the longitude I knew nothing, and no island or coastline was in sight. The weather kept fair, and for uncounted days I drifted aimlessly beneath the scorching sun, waiting either for some passing ship or to be cast on the shores of some habitable land. But neither ship nor land appeared, and I began to despair in my solitude upon the heaving vastness of unbroken blue. The change happened whilst I slept. Its details I shall never know, for my slumber, though troubled and dream-infested, was continuous. When at last I awaked, it was to discover myself half-sucked into a slimy expanse of hellish black mire which extended about me in monotonous undulations as far as I could see and in which my boat lay grounded some distance away. Though one might well imagine that my first sensation would be of wonder at so prodigious and unexpected a transformation of scenery, I was in reality more horrified than astonished, for there was in the air and in the rotting soil a sinister quality which chilled me to the very core. The region was putrid with the carcasses of decaying fish and of other less describable things which I saw protruding from the nasty mud of the unending plain. Perhaps I should not hope to convey in mere words the unutterable hideousness that can dwell in absolute silence and barren immensity. There was nothing within hearing, and nothing in sight save a vast reach of black slime. Yet the very completeness of the stillness and the homogeneity of the landscape oppressed me with a nauseating fear. 
The sun was blazing down from the sky, which seemed to me almost black in its cloudless cruelty, as though reflecting the inky marsh beneath my feet. As I crawled into the stranded boat, I realized that only one theory could explain my position. Through some unprecedented volcanic upheaval, a portion of the ocean floor must have been thrown to the surface, exposing regions which for innumerable millions of years had lain hidden under unfathomable watery depths. So great was the extent of the new land which had risen beneath me that I could not detect the faintest note of the surging ocean, strain my ears as I might. Nor were there any sea fowl to prey upon the dead things. For several hours I sat thinking or brooding in the boat, which lay upon its side and afforded a slight shade as the sun moved across the heavens. As the day progressed, the ground lost some of its stickiness and seemed likely to dry sufficiently for traveling purposes in a short while. That night I slept but little, and the next day I made for myself a pack containing food and water, preparatory to an overland journey in search of the vanished sea and possible rescue. On the third morning I found the soil dry enough to walk upon with ease. The odor of the fish was maddening but I was too much concerned with graver things to mind so slight an evil, and set out boldly for an unknown goal. All day I forged steadily westward, guided by a faraway hummock, which rose higher than any other elevation on the rolling desert. That night I encamped, and on the following day still traveled towards the hummock, though that object seemed scarcely nearer than when I first espied it. By the fourth evening, I attained the base of the mound, which turned out to be much higher than it had appeared from a distance, an intervening valley setting it out in sharper relief from the general surface. Too weary to ascend, I slept in the shadow of the hill. I know not why my dreams were so wild that night, but ere the waning and fantastically gibbous moon had risen far above the eastern plain, I was awake in a cold perspiration, determined to sleep no more. Such visions as I had experienced were too much for me to endure again, and in the glow of the moon I saw how unwise I had been to travel by day. Without the glare of the parching sun, my journey would have cost me less energy. Indeed, I now felt quite able to perform the ascent which had deterred me at sunset. Picking up my pack, I started for the crust of the eminence. I have said that the unbroken monotony of the rolling plain was a source of vague horror to me, but I think my horror was greater when I gained the summit of the mound and looked down the other side into an immeasurable pit or canyon, whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared high enough to illuminate. I felt myself on the edge of the world, peering over the rim into a fathomless chaos of eternal night. Through my terror rang curious reminiscences of Paradise Lost and of Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of darkness. As the moon climbed higher in the sky, I began to see that the slopes of the valley were not quite so perpendicular as I had imagined. Ledges and outcroppings of rock afforded fairly easy footholds for a descent, whilst after a drop of a few hundred feet, the declivity became very gradual. Urged on by an impulse which I cannot definitely analyze, I scrambled with difficulty down the rocks and stood on the gentler slope beneath, gazing into the Stygian depths where no light had yet penetrated. All at once my attention was captured by a vast and singular object on the opposite slope, which rose steeply about a hundred yards ahead of me, an object that gleamed whitely in the newly bestowed rays of the ascending moon. That it was merely a gigantic piece of stone, I soon assured myself. 
but I was conscious of a distant and distinct impression that its contour and position were not altogether the work of nature. A closer scrutiny filled me with sensations I cannot express, for despite its enormous magnitude and its position in an abyss which had yawned at the bottom of the sea since the world was young, I perceived beyond a doubt that the strange object was a well-shaped monolith whose massive bulk had known the workmanship and perhaps the worship of living and thinking creatures. Dazed and frightened, yet not without a certain thrill of the scientist's or archaeologist's delight, I examined my surroundings more closely. The moon, now near the zenith, shone widely and vividly above the towering steeps that hemmed in the chasm and revealed the fact that a far-flung body of water flowed at the bottom, winding out of sight in both directions and almost lapping my feet as I stood on the slope. Across the chasm, the wavelets washed the base of the Cyclopean monolith, on whose surfaces I could now trace both inscriptions and crude sculptures. The writing was in a system of hieroglyphics unknown to me, and unlike anything I had ever seen in books, consisting for the most part of conventionalized aquatic symbols such as fishes, eels, octopi, crustaceans, mollusks, whales, and the like. Several characters obviously represented marine things which are unknown to the modern world, but whose decomposing forms I had observed on the ocean-risen plain. It was the pictorial carving, however, that did most to hold me spellbound. Plainly visible across the intervening water on account of their enormous size were an array of bas-reliefs whose subjects would have excited the envy of a doré. I think that these things were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men, though the creatures were shoon disporting like fishes in the waters of some marine grotto or paying homage at some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well. Of their faces and forms I dare not speak in detail, for the mere remembrances make me grow faint. Grotesque beyond the imagination of a Poe or a Bulwer, they were damnably human in general outline despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy, bulging eyes and other features less pleasant to recall. Curiously enough, they seemed to have been chiseled badly out of proportion with their scenic background, for one of the creatures was Shun in the act of killing a whale represented as but little larger than himself. I remarked, as I say, their grotesqueness and strange size, but in a moment decided that they were merely the imaginary gods of some primitive fishing or seafaring tribe, some tribe whose last descendant had perished eras before the first ancestor of the Piltdown or Neanderthal man was born. Awestruck at this unexpected glimpse into the past beyond the conception of the most daring anthropologist, I stood musing whilst the moon cast queer reflections on the silent channel before me. Then suddenly I saw it. With only a slight churning to mark its rise to the surface, the thing slid into view above the dark waters. Vast, polyphemus-like, and loathsome, it darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith, about which it flung its gigantic scaly arms, the while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds. I think I went mad then. Of my frantic ascent of the sloping cliff, and of my delirious journey back to the stranded boat, I remember little. I believe I sang a great deal, and laughed oddly when I was unable to sing. I have distinct recollections of a great storm some time after I reached the boat. At any rate, I know that I heard peals of thunder and other tones which nature utters only in her wildest moods. 
When I came out of the shadows, I was in a San Francisco hospital, brought thither by the captain of the American ship which had picked up my boat in mid-ocean. In my delirium, I had said much, but found that my words had been given scant attention. Of any land upheaval in the Pacific, my rescuers knew nothing, nor did I deem it necessary to insist upon a thing which I knew they could not believe. Once I sought a celebrated ethnologist and amused him with peculiar questions regarding the ancient Philistine legend of Dagon, the fish god, but soon perceiving that he was hopelessly conventional, I did not press my inquiries. It is at night, especially when the moon is gibbous and waning, that I see the thing. I tried morphine, but the drug has given only transient surcrease, and has driven me into its clutches as a hopeless slave. So now I am to end it all, having written a full account for the information or the contemptuous amusement of my fellow man. Often I ask myself if it could not at all been a pure phantasm, a mere freak of fever as I lay sun-stricken and raving in the open boat after my escape from the German man of war. This I ask myself, but ever does there come before me a hideous, vivid vision in reply. I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless things that may at this very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed, worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likenesses on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. I dream of a day when they may rise above the billows to drag down into their reeking talons the remnants of puny, war-exhausted mankind. Of a day when the land shall sink and the dark ocean floor shall ascend amidst universal pandemonium. The end is near. I hear a noise at the door, as of some immense slippery body lumbering against it. It shall not find me. God, that hand, the window, the window. We finally did it. We finally got to some H.P. Lovecraft. I've been like trying to help. By the way, this is author Zachary Kellyan, the other host of Literary Guys. I've been trying to work some H.P. Lovecraft into this podcast series for a long time because I'm a huge fan, at least of his writings, maybe not of the man as a person, but fascinated by him. And I really appreciate you tackling that dramatic reading, Dr. Gordon McCallum. It certainly contains some words that I did not know. And so, I mean, I guess this is kind of a Lovecraftian signature. Yeah, he was a very learned man, H.P. Lovecraft. So this was written in like uh, 1915, and so you're you're obviously going to get a lot of outdated terms, and you're also dealing with like, this is a shut-in who uh, for most of his life just lived in a studio apartment and who would only occasionally venture out into his very urbane environs of Rhode Island to go to his local library, which in Rhode Island is not called a library, it's called an Antheneum and read about classic Greek literature. So if there's some off-putting terms in here, don't feel stupid. And don't feel like I'm being smart by helping you out with them. I looked them up myself. This is a thing of, I looked them up so you won't have to. Did you do so at the Internet Antheneum? (laughs) Very nice. So at one point he described something as polyphemus-like. That's the name of the Cyclops from the Iliad. I think Lovecraft also talks about Cyclopean architecture, which is actually an architectural term. When you see buildings with these large human or larger sized blocks kind of carved out of the facade, Mm -hmm. that's Cyclopean, as if it was made by giants. It's an actual architectural term. He also references Doré, uh, Gustave Doré, a 19th century horror illustrator. 
and then later likens some of the creatures he's seeing to beyond anything that Poe or Bulwer could describe. Mm-hmm. That's basically him, if he was writing today, saying beyond anything Stephen King or Dean Koontz can describe. Poe being Edgar Allan Poe, who we're all familiar with. Bulwer being the less known, but equally popular in the day, Edward Bulwer Lighton, who, don't beat yourself up if you haven't heard of that author, you have heard of two of his most famous sayings. That is the author who coined the phrase, the pen is mightier than the sword, and also the author who coined the very stereotypical opening, which was an actual opening to a novel, It Was a Dark and Stormy Night. Oh, that's super cool. And then, of course, Dagon, the name of the piece itself, which is not actually referenced in the text, Lovecraft's stealing that. He's a very learned man, especially in the classics. And Dagon is, I believe, a Philistine god who is the god of nature. Not necessarily a fish creature, as Lovecraft describes them here, but um, certainly there's some lineage to that name. He's pulling in familiar hallmarks of human experience to kind of build this psychological horror of Dagon. What did you think of the story itself? I enjoyed the story quite a bit. Like, based off the title, I was expecting some sort of, like, mythical creature or something. And it doesn't start off that way. It's this, I got captured by the Germans. You Mm -hmm. know, which, Mm -hmm. how many horror stories have begun with that subplot? But it ended, like, three paragraphs later, and we're into this drifting out at sea. And then, I actually, you know, for my money, I love this idea of a land mass being created in the ocean that didn't exist yeah, before. Yeah. And it was like sticky and sludgy and like that to me I thought was cool. Like in fact I think I enjoyed that more than the the climax, if you will, of the story. Like I just like this idea, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait it out. We're gonna let this dry out a little bit. We're in the middle of the ocean, we can let it dry out. And yeah. and sort of the, the inner turmoil there. It kind of had a shipwreck, Robinson Crusoe kind of vibe to it. And the way in which, and I think this is kind of a hallmark of the things that I've read from Lovecraft, is that the work doesn't stray that far from reality. Like there's mm-hmm. always very real touchstones that keep bringing you back to like, okay, I've been in that kind of place. So I've been in that kind of environment. And in this case, he isn't treating this like some sort of like otherworldly mythical place. It, he's describing it like, oh, I came up this mountain and had this very precipitous edge to it. And I really like that about the writing. Mm-hmm. And then we get to this way in which he meets this creature. And there's so few words that are actually ever used to describe this thing that is haunting him to the point of morphine. And even worse, you know, eventually taking his own life. And that, to me, was very troubling. Like, he almost felt like he hadn't come to terms with what he had seen. Mm -hmm. Which is a classic trope of H.P. Lovecraft. And as we uh, come off of talking about Stephen King's The Body, Stephen King, one of the great horror writers of the 20th and now 21st century, we we look back to H.P. Lovecraft, who really kicked off the genre. Lovecraft and Poe, prior to them, certainly Mary Shelley with Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. and then uh, Robert W. Chalmers with The King in Yellow. So there certainly are some precursors to horror, but these two men, Poe and Lovecraft, really kind of, especially in the United States, created the foundations for horror as we know it. And Stephen King cites Lovecraft as his greatest inspiration. And I think what is so effective, if you think about it in terms of Steven Spielberg's Jaws, and if you've learned the behind the scenes of that movie, that the shark uh, machine, the shark monster puppet that they created uh-huh. kept malfunctioning, so they kept holding off showing it as they're trying to work through these technical things, but it's what made the movie so good is that you really didn't see the shark until the very, right, very right, end. Right. 
Um, it is now a Spielbergian trope. Exactly. And I think that is exactly... Accidentally stumbled upon something that Lovecraft had figured out in the early 1900s. The less you know, the better. It is the fear of the unknown that is the most primal fear that humans can experience. And I think there is such a truth to that. For a man who barely left his house, had very questionable romantic relationships, who was certainly neurodivergent, but then on the other side of the coin, also xenophobic and super racist. For a man who had all these confusing elements about him, to yet understand that element of human behavior and psychology, probably Mm -hmm. better than any author before or since, is I think what makes so many of us who love Lovecraft's writings drawn to him because nowhere else do you find this psychological horror that Dagon's like what five pages at most yeah yeah. you read it real quick it's like okay this guy's stranded on this like weird mucky tar fishbone thing and then crawls around for a while and then maybe sees a fish person by a monolith and then goes crazy like that's not really a story there's no hero's journey there's no character arc But at the same time, that subtle description that he gives time and time again that allows your mind to imagine the worst is, I think, is so effective. And Mm -hmm. this this is classic early Lovecraft. The thing that sells it for me is, and I'm in no way here endorsing drug abuse, but I'm like, I think that the element which ties it all together is the morphine. Yeah. That it explains the way the story is being told. Like, he's in this highly self-medicated state where he's, like, blocked enough of this psychologically out of his mind mm-hmm. where, like, okay, like, I'm at a point where I can write about this. Like, it's because I've shielded myself via self-medication through so many of these demons. Yeah. This is the only part I feel comfortable sharing with you because I know if I think about it more, I'll go insane. Like that to me is such a fascinating part of this narrative. And obviously the story ends very badly, but it's really interesting that that's kind of what ties this all together is this is written in some sort of morphine haze. And the very nature of how and why it is written is that of a, you know, a drug addled mind. Yeah. And I think it's a brilliant convention that Lovecraft employs to excuse like you said, the lack of detail and the withholding that the narrator does. Because I think that that is what gets to the core of true horror. Lovecraft is taking this from, I referenced him earlier, but Chambers, The King in Yellow, which if you're a fan of HBO's True Detective, they reference The King in Yellow quite frequently. But this is a late 1800s author who wrote a connected series of stories about this play titled The King in Yellow that upon reading it drives people insane. And at no point... Do you actually see the play or hear the play? You just see the repercussions from those who read the play. And that was the first time that any author had really tackled something like that. And I think Lovecraft, and to a lesser degree, Robert E. Howard, who Mm -hmm. was a contemporary of H.P. Lovecraft's author of the Conan series, this kind of unspeakable mythology, this fear of the cosmos, fear of the great unknown, uh, really became the foundation for horror as we know it. And so I think if you didn't love Dagon, I understand. It's on the surface kind of an inconsequential story, but I think that the seeds that this planted for horror as we know it yeah. in the 20th century is unmistakable. And if you were a fan of this, I would absolutely recommend you read some more Lovecraft. I, I personally, my personal favorite is Shadow Over Innsmouth, which also involves fish people. 
if that element of the story appealed to you at all. But it really has created some of my favorite moments as a reader of horror where maybe I wasn't even scared reading it, but I was scared after reading it. And I think that that's what the narrative does so well here. So as we talk about this sort of narrative form of The King in Yellow, that I'm also reminded of another book that I think we, a full-length novel that we discussed is a potential for this season, uh, maybe a future season, which is The House of Leaves. Oh, yeah. Which is just, oh, oh man, if you want to dig into something, just a juicy narrative that is, I mean, it makes you feel like you are in some sort of, like, I don't know, I can't even describe it. It's like in a dissociated mental state. I mean, I highly recommend the book. Like, it is troubling in the nth degree. Much like Lovecraft with a lot of his imagery, that which cannot be named, that which shall not be described, everybody who has referenced the novel that you're talking about has said, I can't really describe it. But in the end, how terrifying is that? When you can't put words to something that you feel, it's a very terrifying emotion. And I think that our best horror writers, Stephen King, H.P. Lovecraft, Mark Z. Daniel Newski, these writers get that. They get human emotion at a core level. And I think you can dismiss horror all you want as, you know, fantasy, sci-fi, whatever, just genre fiction. But I think horror fiction specifically, effective horror fiction, really gets to the core of who we are as humans. And, And that ends up being a very terrifying prospect. Well, I think that's probably a good place to wrap things up here for our short story episode here on Literary Guys. We'd love for you guys to let us know. Do you want this to just become a straight horror podcast? No. The answer is no. Answers, we're open to it. Uh, So if you want to reach out to us at Literary Guys on social media, litguys at gmail.com, or just leave a review and some comments on Apple Podcasts or wherever streaming service you use to listen to us, we really appreciate it. We want the engagement. It really means the world to us to hear from you guys. Uh, We hear from listeners pretty regularly now. It's coming through, which has really been helpful to help us gauge what stories need to be told and what discussions you guys want to hear about. So... We're so grateful for our listeners and grateful for you guys going on this journey with us. I would add to that the way in which I think we've been absorbing most of the meaningful comments that we get has been in the form of ancient hieroglyphs on a monolith that is on a mythical sludge island. That is how we prefer that you leave your comments. You're correct. Yes. But if you do not have access to such a thing in a morphine dream... We will also accept all of the things that Zach talked about as ways to communicate with us. So with that, this has been Literary Guys, signing off.